A quick note before we begin, uh, I record my podcast with Audacity, and the recent update has been giving me some headaches, uh, including the fact that it stopped recording two-thirds of the way through this episode. So I will be splitting this podcast up into two parts. I'll be releasing this part today, and I will re-record the second half uh, in a day or so when my voice returns. (laughs) Enjoy the first half of this episode. You don't know flag. Welcome to You Don't Know Flag, a podcast full of stories about retro gaming, retro computing, video games, arcade games, and technology from a guy who was there and still is. My name is Rob O'Hara, but for the next 30 minutes, you can call me Flat. Greetings and salutations, listeners, and welcome to episode number 226 of You Don't Know Flat. I'm your host, Rob Flack O'Hara, and on today's episode, we will be talking about movie special effects. But before we jump in with both feet, talking about some of my favorite special effects of all time, let's take a few moments to talk about what's been going on in my life as my notes load in from my handy-dandy Commodore 64, which is not true because my Commodore 64 is dead. Let's get to loading time. Loading time. Loading time. Loading time. Welcome back to another episode of You Don't Know Flack. It has been a busy month in Flackland. My daughter graduated high school. And this is my second child to graduate uh, high school, and it's my second child. <laughs> it's my last of two children to graduate high school. My daughter has plans to attend college in the fall. So we are all very excited about that, but it has been a long couple of weeks of graduation parties, her graduation party, other kids' graduation parties, graduation ceremonies, the lock-in, the project graduation lock-in, graduation night, all that stuff. Uh, And it is all finally out of the way. It is all over and done with. The day after graduation, my daughter slept for about 16 hours straight. <laughs> I think she was just trying to recover from all the excitement and we were trying to recover from all the excitement as well. So that has been a exciting May event and another exciting May event, actually late April, early May event has been a series of storms that have come through Oklahoma. Now I did a previous episode on tornadoes, which is a pretty popular episode. If you haven't heard that episode, you should go back and listen to that episode about tornadoes. But we have had multiple tornado threats over the past couple of weeks, which fortunately for us have skirted around my town, my part of the state. But what we did not successfully avoid were the following hailstorms that came through town. Now I have experienced hailstorms multiple times in my life. I have seen hail and typically hail by the time it reaches the ground is pea sized or on a really bad day, marble sized or perhaps nickel sized. But 
we have the pleasure of receiving baseball-sized hail. Um, somewhere between baseball and golf ball-sized hail, I think, is what they finally estimated the final size of the hail to be. Now, we were actually away from my house. We were on the other side of town at a uh, party, at a birthday party, in my wife's car. My wife drives the newest car. Well, the second newest car. My daughter has the newest car. So we were all in my wife's car, and my wife has the most expensive car. And so we saw on the news, they said, hey, there could be hail in the general area. And we said, well, gosh, you know, we better get this car home. And the whole way home, we saw there's a thing in Oklahoma when bad weather rolls in, the sky turns weird colors. It Sometimes it turns a, a kind of a weird yellow color or yellow-orange color, if you see that. It means get home. <laughs> it means get off the road. And that's exactly what happened. So we got home and we didn't see any hail. Nothing happened. So we thought that we had skirted the incoming hail, but it wasn't until the next day when we went outside and looked at my car, which is normally parked outside, and noticed that it looked like a golf ball as did my daughter's brand-new one-month-old SUV. My son's truck got a little bit of hail damage, and then my van, which I know most of you are most concerned about, uh, if you're not following Big Rob's van on Instagram, that's where all the action seems to be happening, or on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash at Big Rob's van, or just go to bigrobsvan.com for all your van updates about my van. But... Hail bounced right off the van. <laughs> they made cars, especially vans, different in the mid-2000s than they make cars today. Cars today seem to be made out of aluminum cans, and back then they were made out of thick steel. So the hail hit the van and bounced off, but that was not the case on the other vehicles. So the hail shattered the windshield on my car and on my daughter's old car, which is the car we had for sale. So we had to replace windshields on those two cars. Then we had to go get estimates on our cars. And the estimates have been about close to $5,000 on my car and my daughter's car. In fact, on my car, they are now possibly discussing the possibility that they will be um, totaling the car instead of just repairing it. The first estimate said they were going to replace the front two, both front fenders, the hood. It's pretty bad damage. In addition to that, we my neighbor came over, and we saw that he had lost some shingles. Now, we didn't lose any shingles off of our house in the storm, but it turns out he said, you should probably have your roof looked at. I said, well, my shingles are all there. He said, yeah, but that's not the only... Uh, thing that the, the only type of, of damage you could get from a storm like this, which I didn't know. And so we had a home insurance adjuster come out and look at our roof. And as I've been joking about today, my estimate of damage was $0 and his estimate was $50,000. So I felt like the guy on the price is right. That had grossly underbid <laughs> <laughs> the price of an item that had just been presented to him. So the insurance adjuster said that our roof 
is needs to be completely replaced. The roof on my workshop needs to be completely replaced. They need to replace screen doors and window frames and a couple of windows and all of my gutters and fix air conditioners. So that adds up to $50,000, which I just can't imagine a world that that will not affect my insurance rates. So super pumped about that. I do enjoy living in Oklahoma. There are some great things about living in Oklahoma. There's a lot of things to see and do. There's a lot of outdoor things. There's a lot of great things. Real estate is pretty cheap, but it turns out one of the reasons why real estate is so cheap is because we are often in the path of tornadoes and sometimes hailstorms. So what are you going to do? We're going to get all our stuff fixed. That's what we have insurance for, and it will take a little bit of time, but that is one of the things I am dealing with at the moment. Also, I just got to mention, I think I mentioned this on the last Sprite Castle, but my Commodore 64 has died. And this is not just any Commodore 64. This is my first Commodore 64. This is the original machine that I got all the way back in 1985. So it has lasted from 1985 until 2023. I thought I was having a problem with my television. I recently got a new television. And by a new, I mean, it is definitely 15-year-old flat-screen television. And when I swapped it out, I noticed I wasn't getting any video on the Commodore 64. I thought maybe it was something with the TV, so I swapped it back to the old monitor. And I'm also not getting video, so I'm not exactly sure. I've also swapped out the power supply. I had a newer power supply, but my old ones were were okay. Uh, but I, I used it just as a test. And I'm still not getting any video. I do get a power light, which is good news, but I'm not getting any video. So I will be taking my Commodore 64 to Boat Fest, which will be happening next month in West Virginia. There will be some uh, great technical mines there that I'm hoping to leverage and find out how much it will cost to fix my beloved Commodore 64. Now, that being said, I am not without a Commodore 64, I have, my wife actually, when she was a kid, her dad had a Commodore 128, which she inherited. So we have the Commodore 128, I have a Commodore 64C, I have an SX64, and then I have a, to quote, uh, Three Amigos, a plethora of Commodore solutions from the Mr. to the Raspberry Pi to running emulators on the PC. So if I have a hankering for some Commodore 64 gaming, then that's not a problem. But my, oh, and I have the Ultimate 64, which I don't have set up right now, but I may swap that out with my original Commodore 64 and retire it once I get it fixed. I would much rather the Ultimate 64 get broken or, or used or die than my beloved child. So... Uh, I will be getting that fixed in the near future, but that is definitely something that uh, has made little flack sad. So uh, that's basically what's going on outside of podcasting. If you have feedback about this or any episode of the show, you know, you can always email me directly at Rob O'Hara at Rob O'Hara.com. Join the conversation on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash Robcasts. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore. Come chat with me on the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord or leave me a message on my podcast hotline, which is 405-486-YDKF. 
If you'd like to support my shows, visit my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. All of my patrons get access to behind-the-scenes blog posts, weekly videos, access to the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server, and other additional perks. To find out more, visit my page. Again, that is patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. My show notes have now loaded off of my Commodore SX64. I had to go to one of my backup systems to store my notes on. So those are loaded up. Let's get started about this episode's topic, special effects. I was four years old when Star Wars came out in 1977. I was a fan of the movie immediately, but when you're four years old, you know, how big of a fan can you be of something? I enjoyed Star Wars. I liked Star Wars. I wanted Star Wars things for Christmas, but, you know, I was just a little kid. But I was a little bit older. I was seven when The Empire Strikes Back came out. I bought into The Empire Strikes Back wave so hard. I loved The Empire Strikes Back. I think it was my favorite Star Wars movie before it was trendy to say that Empire Strikes Back was your favorite Star Wars movie. And in late 1980, there was a television special that was scheduled to air. And that scheduled program was called SPFX, The Empire Strikes Back. That aired in September of 1980. And the reason I know that date is because that same fall we were scheduled to go visit my grandpa who lived four hours away from us and lived so far out in the boonies. <laughs> they didn't have cable probably until the mid 1990s. They, they did eventually get a satellite system and they were able to get some satellite television, but television was pretty iffy back then. And so I knew that watching this behind-the-scenes special showing the making of The Empire Strikes Back was not going to happen. So my dad, as I've mentioned on previous episodes, we had a VCR. We got our first VCR in 1978. We were really, really, really on the early bandwagon for VCRs. And so my dad said he would tape the special for me, which he did. So when I came home, I had this video cassette containing a recording of SPFX, The Empire Strikes Back. Now, those types of specials were pretty popular back then in the early 1980s, and I recorded several of them on this same VHS tape. In fact, I had four specials recorded on it. The first one, again, was SPFX, The Empire Strikes Back, and that aired on September 22nd, 1980. The second one was called Great Movie Stunts, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And it was an entire special explaining not just the stunts that happened in Raiders of the Lost Ark and how they were performed, but also some of the old stuntmen and old stunts that inspired the stunts that appeared in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And that came out in uh, 1981. The third special on this tape was a TV special called Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About Monsters But Were Afraid. Now, 
I think the title was actually, but we're afraid to ask. But if you try to Google this and look it up, the only hit you will find, uh, actually, you'll find a couple of hits, but the main hit is from a New York Times article that says this is an upcoming special that is airing the weekend before Halloween in 1981. So this actually, I believe, aired on October 23rd, 1981. But I'm not 100% sure on the date, but it it did air the weekend before Halloween in 1981. It is a great special that talks all about monsters and mostly monsters in movies, but there are some uh, real-life monsters, like they talk a little bit about Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot and things like that, but most of it is uh, about monsters in the movies. Uh, And I said most Google hits show up that article because all the other Google hits will lead you to me talking about that special. (laughs) That special was never released on videotape, DVD, anything. I wish it had been. Now, I, again, have a, a copy of it on my tape. The fourth thing that was on my tape was a special called The Making of Superman the Movie, which I believe aired in 1980. And this is, again, a behind-the-scenes making of Superman the Movie, which was uh, made in 1978. Across the top of this videotape, in black Sharpie, I believe my dad wrote Special Effects Tape. And this became the tape that I would watch hundreds of times as a child, I watched this tape over and over and over. I was obsessed with how these movies were made. And I have to tell you, this tape really kind of defined who I was as a kid. I mean, you've got Star Wars, you've got stunts, you've got behind the scenes, uh, you've got monsters. Obviously, I'm more well-known publicly for computer stuff, and computers are a big part of my life, and technology is a big part of my life. But outside of computers and video games and those things, this was who I was as a kid. I mean, it was Star Wars, it was special effects, and it was monsters. I loved this little tape. Now... One of the things that I liked the most about these behind-the-scenes specials is that they showed the faces and interviewed the people that worked on movies behind the scenes. So everybody knew Mark Hamill, and everybody knew Harrison Ford, but I knew Dennis Murin. I knew Phil Tippett. I knew Rick Baker. I knew the people that brought these movies to life. And I don't, I mean, I don't really like using the word hero, but I'm going to use the word hero in the sense of when kids have a sports person that they say, oh, that's my hero, like Babe Ruth is my hero, or Joe Namath when I was a kid. People would say, that guy's a hero, that sort of thing. Uh, I was never into sports as a kid. That Those people were not my heroes. I never had baseball cards. That just wasn't my thing. What my thing was were these movies and the people that brought them to life. Seeing George Lucas or Steven Spielberg in an interview or the guys that did these special effects, those were my equivalent of sports heroes at that time. So... I want to talk about five different types 
of movie special effects. Then we're going to talk about some other things later. We're going to talk about how I tried to make my own movies with special effects and how people do special effects today. And I'm going to give some examples of movies. There's going to, we're going to talk a lot about movies. Um, but just to let you know, before we dive in, because this is somewhat a long episode, I'm going to talk about five different kinds of movie special effects. And that's where we're going to start now. And those five are going to be number one, miniatures and models, Number two, masks, practical effects, latex, makeup, all that stuff. Number three, I want to talk a little bit about stop motion. Number four, we're going to talk about matte paintings. And then the fifth thing I want to talk about is green screens or traditionally back in the day, blue screens. So let's get started talking about those five topics. And the first one on that list is miniatures and models. And I should say with each of these topics, I'll probably start off by relating how these things were connected to Star Wars. Because again, Star Wars for me is the beginning of my love of cinema, my love of movies. Uh, it all began with Star Wars. And then there were a few movies around the early 1980s, but Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back uh, is really where everything started for me. So when I think about miniatures and models, I mean, if you go back to the very beginning for me, you have to talk about the opening scene of Star Wars in which Princess Leia's ship flies overhead, followed by a Star Destroyer that is so long and so detailed. Number one, I mean, it, it just has this feeling of this is a real ship. There are so many details, so many little, um, you know, engines and guns and things on this, this thing that you just, you just know it's real. It just feels like a, a real thing. It doesn't feel like, um, today, the feeling that I get often with, with CGI spaceships, you know? So, I mean, that was the first model movie model that I think I ever saw were those two ships flying overhead in the original Star Wars. Now, one of the, or two terms, I guess, that I learned over the years from watching these specials, one was called kit bashing, and the other one is called greebles. Now, kit bashing was the art of buying models, or kit models, or model kits, off the shelf, and then taking those things and putting them together to be something new. And I think I first heard about this on maybe not SPFX, but on a, uh, a special about the making of star Wars in which they had to make things like the, the surface of the death star. And so they would put down, you know, a basic outline of what the surface of the death star would look like for close up shots. But then they would do this kit bashing. So they would buy, they would go to model stores and they would buy tons of, of, you know, model kits and then take the pieces out and, and then use them for other things. You know, a part of an engine might be part of a gun turret on the, the head of the Death Star, or maybe a window frame or something might be uh, used in something on a spaceship. So that was kit bashing was taking a lot of kits, taking the parts and using them for other things. But all those little details that got attached to those models. Those things are called greebles, which is a word I absolutely love. And I always get wrong. I always want to say they're, they're giblets or giblets, 
or gremlins or something. I always get it wrong. But the term is greebles. So greebles are those little tiny details that they would find. And so when they would have a model, they would say, oh, look at all these little greebles that we attach to it. Um, obviously, Star Wars was not uh, the first movie by a long shot to use miniatures or models. When I got a little bit older, there was a, a Channel 34, which was a UHF channel, would show monster movies on Saturday afternoon. That eventually changed. They started showing martial arts movies, which is where I started watching Kung Fu Theater. But uh, when they would show the monster movies, that's where I originally saw things like Godzilla and Mothra and those kind of movies. And, of course, those movies had miniatures in a different way. They had miniature buildings and a guy in a rubber suit that would come in and, and stomp all over the, the buildings. And they always looked a little bit fake, but you could see the effort that they had gone into things like slowing down the camera speed or putting little explosives or, or um, things like that to make it look a little bit more realistic. So there have been miniatures uh, and models you know, in movies for a long, long time. I think one of my favorite examples of models and miniatures is from Blade Runner because Blade Runner is a movie that's set in a dystopian future, which did not exist. And they didn't have the technology to just, you know, make a future city it was CGI. Just, they just didn't have the ability to do that. So they had to build these things. So a lot of the city that you're looking at, uh, as, as they're flying in and zooming in towards the city is just a large model. In fact, the, the very beginning of the movie, when they push in on the city, that was just a huge model. I mean, a model that was 10 foot across or, or more, just a giant model of the city with all kinds of you know, tiny little details and things like that. Again, from uh, some things that they had built, some things that were, were bashed from different kits. But they did such a great job. You know, when you when you make miniatures like that, one of the things is you have to know how to light it. And sometimes today, they use a lot of fiber optics. Uh, and they, you know, because those are the big thing is that they don't get hot, you know. Um, but back in the day when they ran lights inside those models, sometimes the models would actually melt. They would have to shoot things before the models would melt. I remember reading a thing about the uh, original model used for the uh, Enterprise on Star Trek, and they had added lights, and it had actually done damage over time, and they had to replace that uh, later with fiber optic lighting, uh, which, which gives you a lot more flexibility as well. But <clears throat> I don't think that I personally ever um, dabbled in models. I was never a model guy, and I never really built miniatures. Uh, and I tried building models a few times, which just gave me that much more appreciation uh, for the things you know that I saw them doing. Now, over time, the use of miniatures and models obviously has diminished, but not as much as you would think. There are a lot of movies that have used miniatures that you wouldn't expect. Uh, one of the things that always surprised me when I was watching the uh, making of the Star Wars prequels was that the pod racing scene was not all CGI. A lot of the pod racers were CGI built in the computer, but the actual 
pod racing racetrack, a lot of it was a miniature, which they used to zoom in with cameras and, and um, really gives you this, this look that it's a real place. And one of the things that always uh, astounded me was I watched a clip, and this is available. A lot of these are available on YouTube if you want to look them up, uh, that they actually built the crowd of people in the pod racing stands out of Q-tips. So they took Q-tips and then they colored the ends different colors to make it look like a crowd of different types of races of aliens or hair or helmets or whatever. And from far enough away, it all blends together in just a sea of different colors. But that was an actual, the stands were an actual miniature and the crowd were tiny little Q-tip people. I always loved that fact. Uh, I remember watching the making of the movie Speed, and that was, if you remember Speed, that was the the bus that couldn't slow down. Sandra Bullock was driving, and Keanu Reeves was on there, and Dennis Hopper was trying to blow up the bus. Uh, but at the end, they had to jump this bus over a bridge, if you remember that, and that was actually done with a model. Um, but what what people found out over time is that the bigger the model is the more details you can put in, which means the more you can shoot it on screen. If you make a, a bus that you want to jump over a bridge and you make it, you know, three inches long, it's going to look like a little toy bus on screen. But the bus that they jumped on speed, I forgot how long it is, but it's like five or six foot long. Like it was a big bus. Uh, I mean, as far as, as models go, the other thing that, they learned with miniatures and models over time, especially if you're shooting a miniature like that, is that the physics on a small item react differently than the physics on a lar larger item. So if you take a six-foot bus and jump it over a bridge, it's going to look and react differently than a Hot Wheels car. <laughs> if you shove that over, it's just going to tumble. It's not not going to look real, you know. Um. You know, I wrote down some other examples of miniatures and models and things. The um, uh, I've seen a lot of models that were used in movies at different museums and exhibits. At a exhibit in Chicago, I was able to see the mine carts and mine cart track from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Now that is an example where a lot of different techniques were used, but a lot of the minecart chase in the middle of uh, the Temple of Doom was done with miniatures. And so they had these little minecarts and a little track, and it was all done through either them rolling or through stop motion. But I got to see the actual things. And what's funny is when you see things like that, especially like that in real life, they look so fake. When you look at it, you think that would never work on screen. And then someone will tell you that was the one that was on screen, <laughs> which is totally interesting to me. Um, at that same exhibit, I got to see um, one of the alien ships from Independence Day. I got to see the Space Winnebago from Spaceballs, which was actually pretty large as well. And I've seen a lot of... Uh, the ships from Star Wars as well, AT-ATs and, and snow speeders and, and things like that. Um, so th there's something to be said about seeing those little models and just seeing all the little detail that goes into it. I just absolutely have always loved it. The last thing I will mention is um, Lord of the Rings. 
So the Lord of the Rings trilogy that came out several years ago, everybody assumed that a lot of the locations were done with CGI, the huge towns, the villages, the castles. But in many, and I would say most cases, Peter Jackson demanded that they be done with models instead of CGI. He said with a model, you can move the camera around, you can look at things. And they started with these um, miniatures, but one of the the people that were, were working on them, they got to be so large and he wanted a scale that was so big that she said, these aren't miniatures, these are bigatures. And so that name stuck. And so if you go to YouTube and Google bigatures, you will find all these videos about Lord of the Rings and how they built the sets just scaled down. So instead of a castle, you know, being, you know, a thousand feet tall or whatever, it wouldn't be six inches. It might be six foot tall. So it's a large, it's a bigature. That's <laughs> the perfect term for it. Um, but uh, yeah, that those original shots on Star Wars, seeing those ships fly over, I never would have imagined, you know, there's a, um, in SPFX, the Empire Strikes Back, the special, they show a bunch of the different Millennium Falcons that were used in the shooting. And some of them are very large, four, five, six foot long, depending on how many, how many uh, details and how close up the shot was going to be. But during the asteroid scene, there was one Millennium Falcon that was like an inch or two in size. It's really, really tiny. And they used it in several shots. And so that was always an amazing thing to me as a kid was uh, the, the idea that you could take something, a model of a spaceship that is two inches in size and put that on a screen and shoot it in a way to make us all think that it's a real vehicle. So, that's uh, that was my my beginning infatuation with uh, miniatures and models. The second type of special effect that I want to talk about on my list is masks, masks, practical effects, latex work, and makeup. I've kind of lumped all those together, and I won't get into a lot, a huge lot of details. But where this began for me was at the age of four. When I saw the Star Wars Cantina, um, Star Wars, as far as a, a space movie, a space opera, we start off with an outer space scene. We've got these things flying over. And then if you're a kid, it gets real boring, real quick. R2D2 and C3PO end up on Tatooine. They walk around the desert. There's some Jawas. There's Luke Skywalker. There's uncle Owen and aunt Beru. There's a lot of things going on in this desert place. It's just not that exciting. Luke eventually meets Obi-Wan and then Obi-Wan says, you know, <clears throat> we, we got to go find this, uh, somebody to get us off this rock. And they go into the Moss Isley Cantina. You'll never find. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not going to quote the movie. Um, and so they go into the cantina and we are instantly transformed into an alien world. We have been dealing with, I mean, we saw Jawas, which were little uh, guys with cloaks, and we saw Tusken Raiders, and we saw Stormtroopers, you know. Um, but then we go into this bar where every alien is different, and there are crazy aliens. There's a guy that looks like a demon. There's a giant hamster-looking thing. There's um, 
you know, all, all kinds of creatures, all kinds of creatures. Of course, uh, some of the first action figures, right? We, we all got Walrus Man. <laughs> we all got Hammerhead. We all got Greedo. Um, just this this entire collection. And all of that was done by Rick Baker and his team of special effects mask makers. I also knew about Rick Baker from another special that was on that tape, which was everything you wanted to know about monsters. It has a interview with Rick Baker and he shows off some of his masks and you can see some of the star Wars masks that he made in the background of this interview. But one of the things that he shows off is uh, a werewolf mask. He also shows a, a gorilla mask, which we'll talk about in a minute. So what I didn't know at the time was that Rick Baker did the werewolf effects in an American werewolf in London. Now at the time, if you've not seen American werewolf in London, werewolves are magical creatures that are human at some point in time. And then they, when the the moon is full, they turn into werewolves. And there was a long history of werewolf movies where, even though, even though you wanted to make a werewolf movie, you had to hide that part. You had to shoot it in the shadows. You had to not show it. You had to do something because it, the, the ability to do that in a, a realistic way was not possible. And then along came Rick Baker. And Rick Baker did the transformation scene in American Werewolf in London. And in fact, they said they wanted to do this in bright light. They wanted to do it in a fully lit room in front of the camera, no hiding anything. And so there are a series of effects. You see hair growing out of a guy's arm, which was really all individually um, inserted or plucked hairs that were pulled in the arm in, into a prosthetic arm and then shown in reverse. So it looks like the hairs are coming out. We see the guy's hand stretch painfully stretch into the shape of a paw. We see his face, the snout extend the entire thing happens on screen. We can see every step of it and it is horrifying and yet amazing. It's one of those things that you can't watch, but you can't turn away, especially as a kid. Now, the only other competing werewolf movie at that time was The Howling, and it turns out Rick Baker did the effects or worked on the effects on The Howling as well. Now, there's a very famous story that Michael Jackson saw an American werewolf in London, and when he did Thriller, he said, I want the guy that did those effects, and I want him to make me into a werewolf. And so he hired Rick Baker. So if you've ever seen the making of Thriller, you can see an interview with Rick Baker, and he shows how he creates the layers of prosthetics that eventually got applied to Michael Jackson's face. So Rick Baker was kind of the, the werewolf master guy. He was an alien guy at first, then he became the werewolf guy. Um, and he was always a monster guy. He did, um, the effects in Funhouse. Uh, he did the, he just did so many, so many great, uh, masks, but he also did, uh, this gorilla mask and he shows the gorilla mask in that interview 
on my tape. He he shows how the mouth is articulated. And he shows how the eyes, his eyes, you know, poke through. And I always thought, well, it's very convenient that he made a gorilla mask that uh, fit him exactly. And the reason he did that is because he not only created the gorilla for King Kong 1978, the remake that was made, he also played King Kong. <laughs> so Rick Baker kind of became the gorilla go-to guy for a long time. In fact, he did... Um, uh, we've talked about this on Throwback Reviews, The Incredible Shrinking Woman. There's Sydney, the gorilla that's that's locked up in the uh, animal laboratory where they're testing on animals. Uh, he's Sydney, the gorilla. He did those effects. He also did the effects for um, Harry and the Henderson. So, I mean, he's uh, was a master of, of werewolf stuff, gorilla stuff. Bigfoot stuff. Uh, he, he just did all that, but uh, you know his his bread and butter was always aliens and latex latex masks. And in fact, uh, he came back and did a bunch of the alien effects in Men in Black. He actually appears in one of the Men in Black movies uh, as an actor when when uh, all the aliens are there at the Men in Black place and all the aliens are leaving. He's one of the the guys walking through the uh, checkpoint. Um, so Rick Baker, uh, I mean, if I'm making a, uh, you know, a top four special, my Mount Rushmore, if you will, of special effects, people, Rick Baker has to be on it. Um, Rick Baker retired from special effects in 2015. He gave a little speech and he said, CGI has taken away animatronics and now it's taken away makeup. And those are the two things that he did and loved to do. And so he said, I may work on one-off projects in the future, but he's, it's a good time for him to bow out. And so he retired from the movie industry in 2015. Now, the other guy that I knew about as a kid was Tom Savini. I'm not going to get huge into Tom Savini's background, but in the late seventies and all throughout the eighties, if you needed blood, if you needed a head chopped off, if you needed a, a fake arm or a fake leg or a zombie, you went to Tom Savini, Tom Savini. I think that I actually was exposed to him by his appearances on David Letterman. He would come on David Letterman and show all these grotesque things that he had made fake hands and, and bloody, you know, fake knives and all that kind of stuff. And so I think that's where I probably first saw Tom Savini. Uh, Tom Savini worked with George Romero and did uh, Dawn of the Dead. He did lots of movies. I mean, there, his list is, is goes on for miles. He did um, uh, Maniac. He did Creepshow. He did all these things like that. But probably he's most well-known for all the effects he did on the original Friday the 13th. Um, Tom Savini, one of the things is he has been a uh, an actor. He's been in almost as many films as he has worked on. There's a great... Uh, there's a, I don't want to say great. There's a Tom Savini documentary. The problem is that Tom Savini was the writer and director and producer. So, um, it's very, it's kind of one-sided, uh, about how great Tom Savini is. Um, but it's by and about Tom Savini, but it does cover, um, you know, a, a lot of his work and, and, um, a lot of the things he's worked on. So it's still, it's still worth watching. 
Um, you know, from watching all these movies as a kid, I got into masks, not just for Halloween, but I would get Halloween masks that I would save them. I had a werewolf mask that I had for many years. I had a mask that just looked like an old man uh, that, um, you know, I kept and, and would always I would always think of these things like, I wonder if I just wore this downtown and walked around. Of course, I would have looked like a 10 year old kid in a old man mask. I, I did not have the skills of, of Rick Baker or Tom Savini. Um, I guess if you're going to talk about latex and special effects uh, and things like that, you really have to also mention puppets. And I don't necessarily mean Muppets like on the Muppet show, but the go-to one for Star Wars is obviously Yoda. Uh, you know, there was a, a lot of discussion during Empire Strikes Back of how are they going to bring Yoda to life? There were drawings. They talked about, there was talk about putting a, a costume on a monkey <laughs> that was literally discussed for Empire Strikes Back. Uh, there was there was uh, putting a little person in a costume. There were all these different ideas, and then they came up with this idea to try using a puppet. And so, um, it's this thing of uh, you know latex, of foam, of this inanimate object, and you put eyes in it, and you put motion to it, and you put someone behind it that can do the acting. Frank Oz who, you know, was, was, uh, well-versed in, in puppetry brought Yoda to life. And I would go a little bit further as far as, as pushing that with the movies Labyrinth and Dark Crystal. Now we've talked about, uh, on, on throwback reviews, I'm more of a fan of Labyrinth, but I appreciate Dark Crystal, but these were movies that the entire setting were imaginary places. These entire settings were made, and then they used puppets and, and masks and things like that to bring characters together. Uh, those are, are just great examples of, uh, again, practical effects, things that were made and were shot on screen. So when you see in the Dark Crystal the Gelflings, which are these little elf people, and they're riding these big winged creatures, which are really people on stilts, uh, on all fours running, you know, you might go, Oh, I see how that's done. Oh, I think that's a person or this, or that, but what you never question is that it's something that's real. You never go, Oh, that looks fake. Like I, that's a computer. It's not a computer. You just have to figure out how they actually did it, you know? And, and that's the difference for me with, with these, um, uh, old practical effects. And I think the ultimate, Example of a practical effect for me would be E.T. Um, you know, E.T. was for the, I mean, in some scenes was a little person in this latex costume. In a lot of scenes, it was nothing. I mean, it was not a person. It was, uh, you know, a robotic hand or a animatronic head with servos that could raise the eyebrows and, and make the eyes look around. And I mean, you know, I, I know this is not a, a cool thing. A lot of people, you know, don't say this, but I mean, I bawled my eyes out when I thought ET had died when I was a kid. And when I watch ET and I know a lot of adults are really jaded 
towards E.T., um, but I still get choked up <laughs> when I watch E.T., and E.T.'s laying in that ditch, and he's all ash-looking, and we think Elliot's going to die, and, and E.T. just wants to go home, and it's that whole scene. And, of course, that's what Steven Spielberg is good at, right, is pulling emotional strings. But um, but you go, man, that's a, a chunk of rubber, like not even a good looking chunk of rubber. It's just like a brown alien turd with long fingers, you know? And and yet here we are emotionally attached to it. Did you ever cry at something Jar Jar Binks did? No. Cause it's a dumb cartoon. Who cares about it? You know what you can't do to Jar Jar Binks? You can't hug him. You can't hold his hand and take him trick-or-treating. You can't do that with CGI. You can only do that with something that's real. And when Gertie, Drew Barrymore, gives E.T. a hug, or when Elliot hugs him and wraps his hand around him and you can see that they're interacting, it's just different. It's a different emotional feeling, and that's something that we just don't get with modern special effects. I haven't really got into this yet, but as you can tell, uh, I'm a much bigger fan of traditional and practical effects than I am of modern-day CGI, and we'll get to that. The third thing that I wanted to talk about was stop-motion. Now, again, in Star Wars, the original Star Wars doesn't have a lot of stop motion, traditional stop motion. Uh, we have the uh, the lightsaber training uh, sensor thing that Luke, I think that was probably stop motion. Probably the most obvious um, example would be the chess hologram pieces. Those are obviously traditional stop motion pieces. But when we move to The Empire Strikes Back, there's several examples of stop motion and, and some of the best stop motion that we ever saw. And, and probably, I mean, some of that is because of the types of things that they animated, animated. So uh, for example, the at, at the snow walkers, when they come walking in, they are big mechanical things. So they were, you know, I mean, you can see the gears, you can see the things, but when it moves and it walks and it's all herky jerky, it's supposed to, because it's a giant armored transport walker thing. <laughs> That's what it's supposed to look like, you know. But even on the things that weren't, uh, you know, the things like Tauntauns, which were traditional stop motion, uh, they, they just look absolutely amazing. And that opening shot where the camera zooms in, and we see the Tauntaun running across the snow and the camera moves and, and you can see the footprints and everything. Uh, it's just an amazing, it's an amazing shot. And as a kid, um, the way that the different types of special effects were blended together was, was seamless, uh, at least to a kid. Now, when you look at it, 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 you could see what's what, but as a kid, we saw this Tauntaun running across the snow, which was obviously a stop motion miniature. And then it cuts to Luke sitting on one, which if you've ever watched SPFX, <laughs> The Empire Strikes Back, you know is, you know, the top half of a Tauntaun that's sitting up on like um like wooden blocks, like saddle horses, you know, <laughs> it's just nothing there. There's no legs or tail or anything like that. Um but um so Empire Strikes Back 
was a good example of stop motion. Um, and if you've not watched the ILM series, there, I think it's a six six episode series on Netflix. They really show uh, a lot of the special effects and how things were done, uh, especially the first two episodes about Star Wars. But in the original Star Wars, when they started trying to do stop motion, especially stop motion uh, in regards to the ships, they needed a way to track the cameras as they were taking these pictures of the ships so that it looked like the ships were moving. And they did that with a thing called the Dykstra cam, which was invented by John Dykstra for Star Wars. When they all got together, they were like, hey, we need this thing. And by the way, it's not Dykstra cam, it's Dykstra flex. Um, but they were like, we need something that can do this. And they go, I guess we'll invent it. <laughs> So, um, and by the way, if you watch that, it's a really heartbreaking story because George Lucas, uh, went over to Tunisia to go film all the stuff in the desert. And he left a list of like a hundred special effects shots. And when he came back, they only had like four shots done. And he was like, what are you people doing? I got a whole movie and you only have four shots. And then John Dykstra was like, yeah, well, we kind of had to invent technology because you came up with some crazy stuff, George. So um, John Dykstra was the guy that put together and rallied and made Star Wars happen. And then George Lucas basically formed ILM out of that and took everybody except for John Dykstra. And he fired John Dykstra. It was a tragedy. And if you... I mean, John Dykstra went on to go do, I mean, he went from there to Battlestar Galactica and then he went and he's done a million movies and he's had a great career, but it's very, very unfortunate that his name is not associated with ILM who all went on to make all these movies using the Dykstra flex, the camera system that he invented. But anyway, um, you know, so as a kid, 1980 big year for stop motion. Oh, well, hold my beer because here comes Clash of the Titans. I should have said something more witty there. Hold my gr my gruel. Hold my gruel. Hold my ale. <laughs> here comes Clash of the Titans. Uh, Clash of the Titans. If you were a kid in the eighties, it was the quintessential stop motion movie. It was the most amazing thing I had ever seen. Uh, you had the Kraken, this giant creature that came out of the sea. Uh, you had Medusa, you had Pegasus, you had Bubo the Owl, <laughs> which was the uh, apparently medieval or ancient Grecian version of R2-D2. Um, you even had, uh, I think there's fighting skeletons in Clash of the Titans, uh, which is a trademark of the man who did all the special effects in Clash of the Titans, or the stop motion special effects of Clash of the Titans, which is the one and only Ray Harryhausen. I just said that like I was introducing <laughs> like he's behind. Come on out, Ray. <laughs> Ray Harryhausen, everybody. Um, Ray Harryhausen did Clash of the Titans. And I'm, I remember one time as a kid, uh, the, uh, the school, I didn't go to this school. It was a school I went to or that uh, we lived near that I was going to go to. And then we moved right before kindergarten started, but they had a movie day and we went there and the movie, it was, like a, it was during the summer. It was a thing for, for students during the summer and they had a movie screen and a projector set up. And we watched, um, one of the Sinbad movies, either the seventh voyage of Sinbad or Sinbad in the eye of the tiger. One of those. Um, but it was the one with, uh, 
It might have been Jason and the Argonauts. Hey, right? um, I mean, those are all classic Ray Harryhausen movies. But it was the one where they fought the skeletons. I think that's Jason and the Argonauts. And he was fighting skeletons. And uh, I was too young to realize how amazing that was. The work that went into... I mean, think of the work that goes into choreographing 20 people just having a normal sword fight. Now imagine 10 of them are miniatures that are six inches tall and the other 10 are real people that you're going to have to coordinate all that stuff. It's mind-blowing. Uh, it, it is. When you think about moving something, you know, a fraction of an inch and taking a picture and then another fraction of an inch and doing that over and over and over for hours and days and weeks, it's, it's, um, uh, it's incredible. It's really, it's literally incredible. Um, <clears throat> I mentioned Ray Harryhausen. He did all the Sinbad movies, Golden Voyage of Sinbad, Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. Uh, those are all classics. And Jason and the Argonauts, which when I was a kid, I thought was a Sinbad movie. Um, he did some sci-fi movies. He did Earth versus the Flying Saucers. He did It Came from Beneath the Sea, did The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Uh, those are all classic 50s sci-fi kind of horror movies. Um, Ray Harryhausen, uh, I don't think he downplayed uh, his place in special effects history, but basically uh, in an interview, he was asked about, um, you know, modern special effects. And he says, you know, he said, I picked up the ball from Willis O'Brien. Now, Willis O'Brien uh, did a few different movies, uh, Lost World, like the 1925, I think, I think it's 25, 27, 1925 Lost World, but he's, he's obviously, uh, most well known for doing the original King Kong. So Willis O'Brien did King Kong and then Ray Harryhausen basically took what Willis O'Brien did and ran with it. And he was the king of stop motion for 30 years, 40 years. He was the guy. And then ILM kind of came and picked it up from there, and then it went to CGI. And now it's not a completely lost art, but it's pretty close. Um, it, it, there's just uh, – unless uh, you, if you watched that episode of Poker Face recently, there was an episode of Poker Face that had a, a – uh, a guy that was on there that he was supposed to be an old movie special effects guy. And it was actually based on Phil Tippett who did all the, uh, a lot of the stop motion special effects in star Wars. Um, but, uh, uh yeah, it's kind of a, a dying art, but Ray Harryhausen is, uh, may, maybe Willis O'Brien is the godfather of it, but Ray Harryhausen is the father, uh, or I don't know. Is that vice versa? I don't know. I might've got that wrong, but, uh, he's the king. He is definitely the king. Um, there were some later movies in the 80s that had stop motion. Uh, I think probably one of the ones that I think of the most is RoboCop. The original RoboCop, when he goes up against Ed 209. Ed 209 is obviously a stop motion robot. And again, that kind of works because, uh, you know, it's a robot and it's not supposed to look completely smooth. It, it, you know, if it ticks a little bit or jerks in between movements, we, we kind of, uh, uh, our, our brains allow that because it's a robot. Um, there was a, a development in stop motion that is called go motion and go motion is, um, uh, when you do stop motion because film is 24 frames a second, you have to take 24 individual pictures and move your model 
uh, each time something, you know, every, between every frame. Well, <clears throat> with go motion, what they would do is blur those frames. So they blur the in-between frames. And so instead of getting a very static looking move, uh, you get this flowing kind of thing. And it was, I believe the first movie that used go motion was dragon slayer. Um, and that's what they used on the dragon, which looked a lot better than, than traditional stop motion had at that time. Right. So, so it kind of became go motion, um, the only other thing on my list here, uh, well, I got two things that I want to talk about. The first is, um, I mean, I, I feel like I have to mention the, the Rankin Bass Christmas specials. <laughs> like who as a kid didn't grow up watching Rudolph or, um, you know, all those, all those different specials of Santa Claus is coming to town and stuff. Um, and they are definitely stop motion. They're not, um, you know, smooth stop motion. And of course I mean, that's more of like a stop motion kids thing. And that evolved over time, right? That kind of moved into your uh, Coraline, your, um, oh, what are some examples? Wallace Gromit, um, Nightmare uh, Before Christmas, like those types of movies where they are uh, animated, but it's stop motion type animation, you know, which which is a little bit different than special effects, which is why I didn't really go into those. But um, uh, anyway, uh, several years ago for my birthday, there was a traveling uh, exhibit that came to a local museum and it was a display of all of, uh, maybe not all, but a, a large portion display of Ray Harryhausen's work. So I got to go to that and uh, there, there, there's a lot to unpack from walking around and seeing those things, uh, the models Seeing, um, you know, Bubo the owl and seeing that he's a foot tall and, and thinking in the movie, all the things he does, his hut head spun around. He flew around those, those types of things. Um, but I think the two, well, there were three takeaways. Uh, and of course it wasn't just those movies that I mentioned. It was a lot of the other movies like, um, Jason and the Argonauts, like where there was the giant bronze statue that, that guards the, um, the, their entry to the port, uh, or their exit, uh, from the port, you know, those things were there and they had, um, actual like exposed armatures. So you could see what the inside of those things looked like. It was all very fascinating. Um, <clears throat> but the, um, the two takeaways I would say one, was seeing one of the original fighting skeletons. Uh, and again, if you've not seen the clip, I mean, you can go on YouTube and look for Ray Harryhausen fighting skeletons. But, uh, you know, it's a sword fight with skeletons that are holding swords and they've, and they've got um, shields. And looking at the things, they're probably mm, not a foot tall, but not six, maybe nine inches tall, eight to nine inches tall, something like that. And I just remember as a kid being terrified of these skeletons. Just, just uh, what a horrible thing. Like, how do you kill a skeleton? They would fall into piles of bones and then they just popped back up. Um, and and just, just looking at that stuff and just being terrified of it as a kid. And then to see the size of the actual model in real life. That, that was one takeaway. The other takeaway was looking into the eyes of both the Kraken and Medusa. Now there were multiple Medusas. I don't know if there were multiple Krakens. I only remember seeing um, maybe one 
there, which was a uh, no. I think there were two because there was a a bust version and then there was a full body version because he had a long long tail and fins and stuff. But uh, uh, and and the Medusa was the same thing. Depending on the shot, there was a smaller one and a larger one. Um, but to look in the face of those things, and again, as being a, a seven, eight year old kid watching Clash of the Titans in a movie theater with Medusa that was twenty foot tall. Uh, with snakes in her hair and her eyes that lit up and turned people to stone, and then staring at this maquette behind a glass display and being afraid that it might move, <laughs> that the snakes might start to hiss or slither. Um, it you know it just looks so so real, and uh, I know I keep harping on that fact, but but um, they just had a a realism that I don't think they get with CGI. Um, but uh, seeing seeing those uh, models, those maquettes on display was uh, a huge, huge thing for me. It was, a, it was a really good day. The fourth thing I wanted to talk about were matte paintings. That is spelled M-A-T-T-E, if you're not familiar. Now, uh, I remember watching uh, The Empire Strikes Back and seeing Luke, he had had his hand chopped off. He's sitting out there on this weird weather vane thing, and he's about to drop down this this chute that seems to go on forever. And they they show a shot down, and he looks down, and it's just infinite. And I don't know that I ever thought about how that was that was actually made, um, but it turns out that's a painting. And then they have just put Mark Hamill hanging from a very you know not a very high height. And they put him on top of over this painting. Like, how could a painting look like that? But that's what a matte painting is. It is a large painting that's very detailed. Usually it's shot on glass or painted on glass. And it is shot as a background for a movie. Now, it's not always a background. And the reason I say that is because sometimes uh, it is in the foreground. So they will put the matte painting very close to the camera. And then they will have areas cut out because it's glass. They will have areas cut out where there is no painting. And then they will have actors in the old days, they would have actors really far away (laughs) and they would, um, you know, just stand like where that hole is. But then pretty soon what they started doing was they would use a projector and they would project a, you know, film footage that had been shot into that clear area and then retake pictures, you know, uh, of, of it one frame at a time. So they could basically make multiple layers. So you have, um, you know, 90% of it may be a painting and then you may have a small action or a small part that's, that's live action character. So like one example of that is the Ewok village, um, the Ewok village at the end of return of the Jedi, there's a shot of the whole village and the Ewoks are are dancing and there's little bits of fire. Well, the vast majority of that is a painting. And then there are just little tiny cutouts where they projected little tiny pictures of fire for the flames. And then they left a little cutout where the Ewoks uh, and our heroes are dancing. But, but the vast majority of that uh, is just a painting. Um, If you've ever seen the, the scene where, the Millennium Falcon has just landed on Bespin and Lando comes out to greet Han Solo and Princess Leia and everyone. Um, a big chunk of that scene is a painting. The only part that's not is the little 
um, walkway that they're on where the people are, but everything else is just a painting. And one thing about matte paintings, I'll say before I get too far into this, is that they part they're they're designed to fool our eyes. Okay. And part of the reason they're designed to fool our eyes, it's not just a, a visual thing, but it's the way that the shot is filmed. So for example, in that scene, you've got the people walking. So your attention is on Han Solo and Lando and everybody else. You're not looking at the rest of the scene, which is a painting, right? Once you know it's a painting, you can kind of tell, but now on Blu-ray, you can really tell. A lot of these things don't stand up as well as they did originally back in the theater or, of course, on, on VHS or, or um, you know, lower definition copies of these things. Um, yeah, actually, a lot of Bespin is, uh, <laughs> um, uh, was all, all, all matte painted. Um, the uh, walk... When R2-D2 and C-3PO and Return of the Jedi are walking down the dirt road as they're headed to Jabba's palace, the part, the path that they're walking on is real, but the whole rest of that scene, including Jabba's palace, is just a painting. So map paintings are a pretty inexpensive or cheap way to, you know, put something there that would be impossible to build in real life. You could, in some cases, achieve that same effect with a model or a miniature, but map paintings just have this this look to them that are uh, that is uh, very realistic and very amazing. One of my favorite matte paintings are two. Well, here, uh, I just thought of another one. So let's say three. Three of my favorite matte paintings. The first one, I've got a lot of them now that I think about it. Um, one is at the very beginning of Return of the Jedi when the Tidarian shuttle lands and Darth Vader gets out and Darth Vader comes down the ramp of the shuttle. He lands on the death star that's being constructed, the new death star. And, uh, you know, the guy comes out to greet him and you see all these stormtroopers standing at attention. Well, you can look this up, but almost all of that shot is a painting, including all the stormtroopers. Those aren't real people. They are just painted. Um, and the, the shuttle is painted and the only thing like the ramp where Vader walks down is real. And then the pathway where they're walking is real. But if you, you look at it and zoom in, you can really tell that all those stormtroopers are just a painting. But again, uh, our attention is on Darth Vader emerging from this shuttle and we don't look, uh, I mean, peripherally, we might know, we might go, gosh, it's a lot of stormtroopers at attention. Uh, and they're standing very still. <laughs> the reason they're standing very still is because they're a painting. Uh, so that is a great example of one. Um, another one is the shot, uh, probably the, one of the most famous scenes from the wizard of Oz where Dorothy and the three, her three friends are walking down the yellow brick road towards the Emerald city. And we could see the Emerald city uh, off in the distance. And we see the poppy fields on the left and the right. Well, the only thing in that shot that's real is the yellow brick road and the four people, everything else around that is all one giant painting. And I'll tell you how I know it's all one painting here in just a minute. Uh, another famous map painting is the last shot in Raiders of the lost Ark, where the government employee is pushing the Ark into the warehouse. Um, part of the warehouse is real, but the whole back part, um, and, and most of it is all a painting. And 
if you look on YouTube, there's an, uh, a video that kind of shows what to look for in this shot, but there's a very distinct line where you can see the difference where the matte painting lines up with the real action, and it's very obvious. So once you know where to look, uh, you will see it every single time. But that's, that's a, uh, uh, you know, it's not practical to get a warehouse and put 50,000 crates of stuff in there. So they get a guy to paint that, and then... They just shoot the part that they need, and they they overlaid it over that. Um, Two other examples that I will mention. uh, Number one is the landing strip on the top of Devil's Tower in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Now, this is the kind of matte painting where just part of the shot is a painting. So Devil's Tower is real, and where the people are standing is real. But the landing strip, obviously, there's no landing strip. By the way, I've been to Devil's Tower, and I can tell you for a fact there's no landing strip up on top of Devil's Tower. Seen it, been there, it's not there. I mean, there are UFOs and aliens, of course, but no no landing strip. Um, but uh, So that's an example of a, a matte painting uh, that's, that's you know covered covers up part of a real scene. Um, and the other one is in 2001, A Space Odyssey, which I'll talk a little bit about later. Um, but this scene where the, for example, where the monoliths are there, that's a painting. That is not, they didn't build a big giant monolith. It's a painting. It is a matte painting with live um, uh, people and, and elements that have been mixed in to make it look like that. Um, now I got to go to a museum one time, an art museum and on display, they had several matte paintings from movies. So I got to see in real life, in person, the matte painting from the Emerald city shot. I got to see the matte painting, uh, of the uh, death star when Luke is looking over the edge. And I got to see the matte painting of the Ewok village. And again, these things up close, they don't look that great. I mean, you look at it and you go, you could see brush strokes. You could see things that you, you would say, how would anybody think this is real? But, you know, it's movie magic. It, it, that's just the way that they do it. And it comes out of it and it's an amazing. Um, I think this is a dying art. I don't think they hire oil painters to paint giant paintings and pay people for two months or a month or however long it takes to do one of these paintings. I think now they go build it in a computer in about 10 minutes. And, and that's the end of that, which is a shame because it's not only a, a part of special effects of movie, special effects and movie history, but um, it's a, it's an art form and it's an art form that I think has uh, pretty much gone away. The fifth and final type of special effect that I wanted to talk about are green screens. Now, if you are old school, like me, you will remember these as blue screens. So in Star Wars, when they were making Star Wars, when they're making all these movies, uh, and you saw behind the scenes footage, you would see ships and they would be in front of a giant blue screen. Now I watched SPFX. I watched them shoot spaceships in front of blue screens. And then I know in the movie that the ships would be in front of outer space, but I didn't know how it worked. So the, so let's go back to the, if you want to go super old school, like before green screen and blue screen, um, they used rear projection. And everybody knows what rear projection is. Uh, when you would watch, you know, the Beverly Hillbillies or, you know, some movie and, uh, or TV show and someone would be in the car and then behind them, you would see this footage, which is basically something being shot, uh, you know, onto a, a rear projection screen of a road behind you moving. 
And uh, that was rear projection, right? But what they figured out is if you put all of one color on there, you could take that color and basically do an optical print and you could make a copy of that film without that part in it. And then you could put something else in that part and not overwrite the part that had the people in it. (laughs) And you could combine those two in a very manual process on film. And that was kind of how blue screens work. So, um, I mean, I, I I can't even point out a, a scene in star Wars because every scene in star Wars, uh, has a blue screen, you know, I mean, not every scene, but most, most shots, you know, anything that has a spaceship, anything that was all, they would shoot the stuff in front of a blue screen and then they would go back and then they would, you know, shoot the, uh, you know, the, the space background. And then they would combine those two and make and reshoot it and make one film, uh, one piece of film. Uh, I remember watching, there's a, a later star Wars behind the scene thing. It's called classic creatures. And it has a long segment about how they did the speeder bike chase, which is one of the uh, big action scenes in Return of the Jedi. And so they showed Luke and, and Leia riding on the speeder bikes, and they're sitting on these bikes that are in front of giant blue screens. And then what they would do later is they had a guy with a motion control camera walk very slowly uh, through the forest in California, the redwoods or wherever, and um, shoot the footage of where it would go, and then they could combine those things uh, into one shot. They would so the blue screen behind them disappears; it becomes the other footage. Um, I, I think the easiest explanation, which as a kid was mind blowing to me, but now makes the most sense, would be um, the original Invisible Man. So you have a guy that's uh, wearing all blue. And you shoot a background, you know, like shot in, in a, a cafe or something, and then you shoot a guy in front of it that's wearing blue, and then you take the blue and you basically erase it and you layer those two things together, and then the guy disappears except for, you know, the hat or the sunglasses or, you know, whatever whatever he's wearing so that you could, you could see where he was. Um, now, I have read... Now, so so the reason, and I, I did some research on this. The reason that they originally chose blue as the color for blue screens is because cameras were not as color sensitive back in the day as they are now, or as they became. So they couldn't tell; they weren't very accurate in telling uh, or, or judging different shades of green. But they were really good at judging different shades of blue. And so that is why they originally made them blue screens because they could, uh, as long as it was lit, they would get this one uniform color of blue and then they could very specifically remove that color of blue from their process. What happens when you make a superhero film where your superhero wears blue tights? The technology of blue screens was a nightmare on the filming of 1978 Superman. And so instead of using blue screens, they ended up using yellow screens, which was also a nightmare because they had a lot of problems with the yellow uh, matching with skin tones. Uh, And so I have read that in some of the scenes, uh, they actually use like a much darker suit 
So the blue was not a, a bright blue. It was really dark blue. And I've actually seen one suit where it looks almost black. But then the, those shots were color shifted to try to make it look blue. Um, it, it was a nightmare. It was really, really difficult. Now, I had heard that that was the reason that they made the switch to green screen. But apparently that is urban legend. That is not true. Um, it wasn't until 1990. And apparently the first major motion picture that made the switch from blue screen to green screen was the hunt for red October. Now, um, there's, there's two reasons for this. Number one, uh, cameras were now good enough to where uh, you could uh, use green and it could detect this very specific shade of green as opposed to blue. Number two, it's a big movie about being in the water. <laughs> so blue screen is just going to be a nightmare for that. So, um, But uh, yeah, that, that was basically the movie that changed it. And then after that, everybody pretty much adopted green screens after that. Um. In the early days of blue screens, I thought the best use of them was, like, if you go back to The Empire Strikes Back and you think about Bespin, um, you've got the scene where uh, Han and Leia, they're all hanging out in the lounge area, and you look out the window and you and there's spaceships or whatever flying around the windows. Well, those were obviously just blue screens, and then later on they came in and they put stuff. So I thought that was a great use of blue screen technology. Let's just call it green screen technology at this point, right? Um, but where things went wrong is when they just decided they could do everything with green screen, right? And so once they started building these digital sets uh, or miniature sets that they would then uh, stick into place or com uh, compost in later, um it it became more and more difficult for the actors because the actors didn't have anything to look at. Um, there's a very, I mean, uh, Liam Neeson was very vocal about this when he was doing the uh, Phantom Menace, the first couple of Star Wars movies, um, or the prequels, where he, or well, the first one, <laughs> mostly. The second one, he was kind of a ghost. Um, but, you know, where he was saying, like, I'm in a room and, and I'm just in a big blue room. And they're like, well, over there's going to be something. And over there's going to be something else. And he's like, well, what does it look like? And they go, ah, we don't know. We're going to, we'll figure that out in post. Well, if you're an actor, that's pretty tough to do. It's pretty tough to react to whatever. And, and I think you see that later in the prequels with, um, uh, Ewan McGregor when he's trying to, you know, when they're in the, um, the arena and the monsters are coming and it just looks like a, a cartoon. It looks like a PlayStation game. And they're just, you know, they're like, well, just pretend like you're scared of this or do this or that. And a lot of times he doesn't look like he has the right emotion on his face. Uh, and I think that's why, because he's looking at nothing. He's looking at a blue room. You know, if you look at, or green room, if you look at the, um, there are clips on YouTube of the making of some of the Marvel movies, and it's literally people just running around in a green room. Uh, and and I, I just don't um, – I think it was a good technology that got out of hand. I think, you know, when you used it for a window, when you used it for, you know, to remove a character or something like that, when you used it to um, – uh, remove Lieutenant Dan's legs. It, it, it was a good technology. And then when you just decided they were going to build a whole movie with it, I think that's kind of where things started to fall apart. 
That wraps up the first part of this two-part episode about movie special effects. If you have feedback about this or any episode of the show, you can email me directly at Rob O'Hara at robohara.com. Join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash robcast. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore. Come chat with me on the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server or leave me a message on the podcast hotline, which is 405-486-YDKF. If you'd like to support my show, visit my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. All of my patrons get access to behind-the-scenes blog posts, weekly videos, access to the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server, and other additional perks. To find out more, visit my page. Again, that is patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. You Don't Know Flag is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and the RSS feed at podcast.robohara.com. To hear more podcasts from me, visit podcast.robohara.com for links and information about my shows. Congratulations. If you made it through the first half here, you now know a little bit more about me and a lot more about special effects. Stay tuned for part two.